0: Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark, and last week we talked about the rich young ruler, as the Bible calls him, or as we've called him over time, and the whole gist of that twofold account was was twofold. The first one is you don't have to have a relationship with God, let me write this, you don't have a relationship with God and are prepared for heaven because of the good that you do or the bad that you don't do. It's based on your relationship with Jesus through being born again, period. Anything that we do good is beyond that. We do it in response to being saved, not as a part of needing to be saved. And the second one is, the Christian life will make demands on you as to what is the most important thing to you. In other words, what are you willing to give up if God asks you to give it up? There's a phrase that says, whatever God gives you, the blessings, hold them loosely. If God asks for them, are you willing to let them go? Now, I used to think that being a Christian was just like a crutch for those who couldn't cope with reality, who couldn't cope with life. Yeah, they're going to fall upon this as their crutch to get through life. It was for weak people. But I'm finding out it's it's exactly the opposite. It takes courage and faith to stand for Christ. It takes courage and discipleship to do what God's calling you to do. We ended with the disciples wondering if anyone could be saved, and Jesus says what? That's impossible unless God does the drawing, right? And we know that God wants everyone to be saved, and God will draw everyone as we pray for them, but we as believers, well, Before we became believers, God will draw you. God will put the carrot out there. God will show you what you need to do. But you have to choose to do it. And you can choose to say yes or no. God wants 2 Peter 3, 9. God wants all to be saved. All won't be saved. But God wants them to be. And God will draw. And the more we pray, the more God will draw. And then they... And we pray that God allows them to say yes. Now we come to the next section. Now, it comes right after the same section in your Bible. Commentators disagree as to whether it happened immediately or some time had passed between these two verses. But it doesn't really matter because it all applies to what happened previously to that. Mark 10, 28 starts out with, Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first." Let's pray real quickly. Father, thank you for your word again. And I pray you would help us to rightly divide your word of truth, allow it to minister to us, to challenge us, to bless us, and to accomplish in our lives what you want to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure the guys, you know, they just got away from the rich young ruler and Jesus talking about being saved. And they're thinking, what just happened? What, what just happened here? Now, whether they were thinking about it for a while Or Thinking about it instantly after this happened doesn't really matter They just heard Jesus tell this guy to sell everything But he didn't and he walked away now they're wondering What's in it for me Since that guy didn't give up what was his we're giving it up What's in it for me? Verse 28 says Peter said to him. We've left everything to follow you now Peter, as usual, seems to be the spokesman for the group. He uses the the word we. He didn't say I've given it up or me. It's it's we. So they're probably all getting around Peter saying, hey, you ask him. We all think this, but you're you're the guy, the mouth. You go up and ask him. So they're all talking amongst themselves, and they kind of push Peter up. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. So Peter asks him. Now, Matthew's account gives us a little bit more detail On that same question, Matthew 19, 27, Peter answered him and said, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, we're giving up a lot, Lord. What are you gonna give us in exchange for that? Now, I know nobody here has ever thought that. What's in it for me? If I do all this stuff for God, what am I gonna get out of this? Come on, you don't have to raise your hands, but I know we've all probably thought that. Lord, I've done all this stuff for you. Are you going to do anything for me? What do we get in return, Lord, for giving up everything? Do you ever think that God owes you something? That's what Peter's saying. Look, Look, you owe me, Lord, is what he's thinking. God, I did all this for you. What do I get out of that? What do I get for giving up this stuff for you or giving up my life for you? Now, God does give us promises, and the Bible says he takes care of us. But how many know this relationship is not a quid pro quo, right? I do one for you, God, you do one for me. I do one for God, God, you do one for me. That's not how it works. Because Jesus goes on and tells them in verse 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for asking the question. He gives them a promise of what's going to happen. Jesus wants to reassure them that whoever follows him will never really lose what's important. So I have that effect. Be well when be aware when all men speak well of you. Well, I'm good. God will reward you It may not be in the way that you think. The hundredfold return that Jesus is talking about is to be understood in the context of the new relationships you are going to form in the family of God. Now, unfortunately, when people come to Christ, your immediate family may not understand that. Your friends may not understand that. Your co-workers may not understand it. They just don't get what you're doing. But you know what? You follow anyways. You still serve God anyways. Now, in extreme cases, your decision to become a Christian may cause others to just cut their relationship off with you. It's never our desire that this happen. We want to maintain relationships. But usually they're the ones who cuts it off for whatever reason. They're the ones who usually make that decision. As a Christian, we don't want to cut off anyone because we have the ability to influence them with the love of Christ. We want to be able to show them what Jesus did for us. Sometimes they cut that off from us. And it may be family that cuts you off. If by becoming a believer it causes that to happen in your life, God says, "I'll restore what you lost." And that's happening in the church setting. How does that happen? Mark 10:30 says, "You'll You won't fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. Sometimes your relationship with other believers can be closer than family blood, family ties. Why? Because you have a singular purpose, a singular focus. Now, I I love my brothers, wish we could hang out more. And for me, it's probably more of a distance thing than, than anything, than a Christian thing. But I still wish they would get saved. And when we get together, we, we have fun when we're together, but there's always that disconnect. And you want them to know Christ. You want them to experience that. But I have relationships here that are more meaningful than that. That's how God restores what you lose. When I first moved to Florida, I lived with my folks for a time. And, but uh, the first thing, I, I had to find a church. I got to find a church church so I can get fellowship with other Christians. And so I did, I went searching for churches I can get in with because it was a different relationship, a different dynamic with church folks than with other people, whether it's your family or not that don't believe. You want that relationship, but you want your relationship to stay as much as you can with those you love in order to show them what Jesus can do. There's a quote that says, God takes nothing away from a man or woman without restoring it to him in a new and glorious form. God restores what you give up. It may not be one for one, but look at your life. You look back. The longer you've been alive, the more you can look back and see how God has ministered to you. You may not even felt it at that time, but you look back and say, oh, that was God. That was God that did that That was God that brought that relationship into my life God was able to bring someone in Who I needed at that particular moment Now Jesus goes on to say this In verse 30 You're not fail to receive A hundred times as much And with them persecutions Now We don't like that part (laughs) But Jesus is always realistic About the Christian life there's going to be persecutions Second Timothy 3.12 says In fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life In Christ Jesus will be persecuted Now We don't have a lot of that in this country Really, I don't see any of it I mean, other than maybe getting your feelings hurt Or people mad at you and losing friendships No one's losing their life right now In America For being a Christian No one's being burned at the stake. However, for when Mark's writing to the Roman Christians, Roman Christians were facing persecutions. And it's helpful to them to understand that this is a normal part of being a believer. It's helped them to know it's to be expected. It's not that they're being punished for sin, but they're being persecuted for righteousness. How many think that when something bad happens to you, our first reaction is, what did I do to cause this? I must have done something to cause this. I must have done something to bring this persecution on. I must have, whatever. Jesus is saying, it's not your fault. They're persecuting you because you're doing it right. And sometimes hardships come our way even when we're doing everything right. And it's not because of sin that these things come. God wants us to understand that there are times in your life that bad things are going to happen and it's not because of something that you did or something that you didn't do. Jesus even spoke about that in Matthew 5.10. It says, Blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we should expect persecutions and hardships in this life. Verse 30 goes on and says, With them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The promise Jesus gives them is, is, is a full, albeit difficult, life, not only here, but now you have eternal life that's going to be perfect. You're going to have little promises, little skirmishes here, hardships here, but you're also promised an eternity in heaven. Jesus promises eternal life in the age to come. He doesn't include persecutions in that phrase. The phrase was before that, now, he's talking about you're going to get everything you need in the age to come. Everything that happens now in this life is only a setup for what is to come in the future. Now, I've used this example at, at funerals, and I may have used it here as well. And the Bible calls your life what? A mist, vapor, poof, gone. The older you get, the faster it goes, Right? But eternal life is just that eternal no ending right the example i've used is you go to school for a short number of years because you are preparing yourself for the rest of your life right you're and you go to college for the same reason or whatever kind of education you do you do that it's not pleasant generally you endure the the studying you endure the long nights the caffeine pills all that stuff you do that And you endure it because you know that at the end of those four years, the end of those eight years, the rest of your life is gonna be better. You understand that? You go to school, if you quit high school and you don't learn how to read, you don't do any math, your rest of your life is gonna be hard. But you endure that, you study, you do all the things that you think you don't wanna do, it's painful, you don't wanna do it, but you do it because you know the hardship of school is preparing you for eternity, for life. You know what's ahead of you after you suffer for these four or eight years. And the hardships we face in this life are worth it because we know what's coming ahead, right? Romans 8.18 says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will give us later. So the hardships we face now, in fact, look back in your life, the hardships you went through maybe years ago, and they're over. You don't think about them much anymore. They were there for a time, and now they're gone. Mark Lowry does a skit, and he says his favorite verse in the Bible is it it came to pass. It came to pass. And he goes on to say either the problem passes or you pass. Either way, it's gone. And the same thing happens with the times of challenges or persecutions. There's going to be a time for both. And they're all designed to make us mature believers. The verse shows a contrast between the blessings from God, children, homes, family, and the times of challenge, which is the persecution. You're going to have both in your life, and they're both designed to make you a mature Christian. If everything's going smooth, there's never any conflicts, what happens? You get complacent. Soft, maybe lazy. Look at Israel. Every time things were going good with Israel, they fell away. But as soon as hard times came, they went back to God. We need the occasional trial and hardship to keep us alert. Anybody here go to the gym? Oh, right. Now, when you start the gym, I don't go, obviously. But when you start with the gym, you go light, correct? And the more you do, the heavier the weights. If you kept doing the five pound bar all the time, it never would benefit you. And it becomes 10 pounds, and it becomes 20, 50, or whatever. You get increasing resistance to make you stronger. As you go through life, you'll get increasing resistance in the form of hardship to make you a stronger believer. How do you know you're gonna handle something unless you go through it? How do you know you can build faith if you don't trust God to get you through something? If you never have to trust God for anything, that everything's just handed to you, your faith is gonna be weak. Now Jesus ends with this one, verse 31. He says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now that's a statement that we know Jesus makes on more than one occasion. In this time, it refers to the contrast between what is currently happening on earth and what is compared to what is going to happen in heaven. In other words, those in power now, when we look around us, those in power now will no longer be in power. Those in rank and position will no longer have those positions. Those with wealth, that wealth will be gone. None of those attributes make it past your death. However, those who have had nothing here and because of their dedication have given up their possessions and positions to follow Christ, they'll be the ones to have those positions in heaven. Now, going back to the beginning, if we give it up now for the Lord, he will give it back to us in eternity. To the general public, the rich young ruler appeared to be first, He was one God blessed he was on top of the world and the poor destitute disciples were the last In the end Those roles will be reversed God sees things from the perspective of eternity not for what we just see now Let me give you an example going back to the school analogy I don't know if you know anybody like this, but when I was in school I did you had the guy that dropped out in 10th grade Skipping school, not studying, driving a nice car, enjoying life. We're in school looking out the windows at this guy driving his nice 68 Z28. I still remember it. Orange with white stripes. Took, took out, I'm sure, a loan for that expensive car. Maybe he had a part-time job making minimum wage, and now he's on top of the world because he's on his own. He's got everything. He's got the world in his, his hands. While we're the ones in school denying ourselves, studying instead of joy riding around, not going out every night, driving a junker, it appears to some that maybe we're just wasting our lives. This guy's enjoying himself. And he could say to us, hey, buddy, why don't you, you need to enjoy life a little bit. Get out of your head and just, and get out of those books all the time and enjoy life right now. The school guy or the school girl sees the end of the game not just the here and now. They deny themselves the immediate fun and enjoyment because they are believing and preparing for a better future. And all that studying and self-denial at some point will have been worth it. Going back to Romans 8.18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will give us later. It does not matter if we are last in the world's eyes or not. Where are you in God's eyes? How do we stand in God's eyes? We enter into a marriage relationship because we love the person, right? We think we know what will happen in our marriage, and we hope it goes right. Right? But we really have no idea how things are going to go. We do it because we love that person not just for what that person can give to us. And we intend to stick it out regardless of what comes our way, from better for worse, right? We enter into a relationship with Jesus when we get saved. Again, an intimate relationship. And we enter it having no idea of how it's going to go, right? We hope it goes great. We hope we're blessed. But we really have no idea how it's going to pan out for us. But we do it, we enter into that relationship because we love the Lord. Regardless of what situations may come. And we stick it out because we love Jesus. We stick it out not for just what he can give to us. If we're only there for what Jesus can give to us, it's not going to work. There's a saying that says, if you give because it pays, it's not going to pay. If you do it because you think God's going to give you something in return, other than salvation, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and you're not really in it for love. One commentary says it this way. They must not conceive of their discipleship in terms of rewards. Discipleship entails suffering and service. It must be entered into in terms of love and commitment to Jesus, not because of what one hopes to get out of it, either in this life or in the life to come. close i got a big clock back there now got two big clocks back there let me close with another mal- marriage analogy now i don't do a lot of premarital counseling but on the times that i do i pose this scenario to the to the couple i would tell them suppose one week after you get married and then you know their love and, and love will conquer all right so suppose a week after your wedding one of you has a car accident and is paralyzed totally incapacitated totally dependent upon you for everything and not just for a week or two but this is going to be for life are you going to stick it out because i asked him to define what love is define love for me no and they'll give me an emotional feeling definition for love is commitment you're committed regardless and I asked them, are, are you willing to accept that as a possibility? And are you willing to take that on in your marriage? Because if you're not, then you're not ready for marriage. When you come to Jesus and, and you've been forgiven, you may have an awesome, carefree life. And I think most of Americans have that compared to the rest of the world. You may experience a great number of blessings. Just like some marriages seem to have a whole bunch of blessings But you may also suffer difficulties and hardships along the way just like some marriages do Going back to the rich young ruler he was not ready to enter that type of relationship where it cost him He didn't understand what it cost to serve the Lord I guess the question is do we understand what it means to serve the Lord. I had, a, I had a, we do these reels, we put these reels out, you know, f- a couple minute blurbs of sermon. And usually I don't get anything, no one ever, you know, they like it, but that's about it. Well, I got a comment, like a real long comment on my last one. And it, you know, it's you take five seconds out of a 45 minute sermon, you're gonna get misunderstanding. So they were, you know, critiquing what I said, which is fine, Crit- you know. The question is, in the critiquing, do we understand what it means to serve God? Their, their bone of contention was, you don't have to do anything to get saved, which I agree with, you know, God saves you. Nothing you do to do that. But I also agree that on the other side of salvation should be fruit and evidence of that salvation. There should, people should notice a difference in your life. Being a servant of God means there's going to be a difference in your life. And it may be one called to hardship. It may be one called to persecution. It may be one that you don't particularly like. Just like the marriage, you go into it because you love the person and you're committed regardless of what comes your way. And even if these bad things happen, We have to focus on who God is as a person. Do we believe that God is a loving God? Do we believe that God cares for you? Think about the parent relationship. Everything you do for your child is because you love them. And the things you do for them, they may not like. And it may be difficult for them but you do it because you love them, and and as they get older, they trust that what you're doing for them, you're doing it because you love them and you care for them. So when these persecutions and hardships happen, we have to look at the character of God. Is God truly a loving God? Is he? I believe God is a true and caring God. God will not allow anything to happen to us that is not for our good, because he is a good and caring parent. We don't understand it. we may not like it just like our kids don't like the rules we set down for them and the things we do for them But if we understand that going into any hardship or persecution we have to focus on who God or what God's character is Does he really love you and care for you? If you can say yes to that and we know it's true Then whatever hardship we go through we know that God is with us through those difficult times He's not gonna let you alone He's going to carry you through those times. He may allow them to happen just like he allowed them to happen to Job. But at the end of the day, God manifests his presence to Job so that Job understood who God was in character. So when these things come your way, and they're going to come. No one's life is perfect. No one's life is hardship free. Do we trust in the character of God enough that if these things happen, God is going to take care of me on the other end. Amen? Would you stand up as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? you know, we come to church to, to fellowship with one another and, and to hopefully draw closer to the Lord, either through worship or through the Word. We want our life to mature. We want to receive exactly what God has for us so that when these things happen, we are mature. A six-year-old who has punishment put upon him or rules put upon him doesn't really get it because they're six years old. But if they turn 20, those same punishments, they understand because they're more mature. They get why it's coming. And they get the reason and the meaning behind it. As we mature in the Lord, we will be able to endure the things that come our way more than we could as younger believers. We come to church because we want to mature. We want to become more like Christ. When Jesus was facing the cross, he said, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go through it. But he also said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, none of us want hardship to come our way. None of us want persecutions or trouble but we want to be mature enough that when they come we're able to press into our Father understand His character and allow Him to carry us through each one of them and then when that time of trial is done we can look back and we realize that God is the one that caught us through it and we become mature maybe you're here this morning you've never really experienced a salvation in your life You've come to church, maybe, or you've heard it, but you've never really trusted Christ for your salvation, that your sins would be forgiven. The Bible says we are all sinners, every one of us, and we will continue to sin until the day we die, but we are all sinners. And the Bible says that the wages, the penalty for that sin is death, which is eternal separation from God. But the Bible also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. The Bible also says, as many as receive him, did he give the authority or the right to be called children of God. God offers his salvation to everyone, but everyone has to make the choice on their own. If you're here and you've never really made that choice, or you can't look back at a time in your life where you say, well, on this particular day or this particular month, this is when I accepted God's forgiveness through Christ. If you don't have a a date or a, a, a recollection of that, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. And if you're not sure and you can't pinpoint a date and you're not really sure if you've done that, well, this is the day to make it sure. This is the time to say, yes, Lord, I believe I'm a sinner and I believe that the only payment that I can ever expect, the only way I can ever make into heaven is because of my trust in the sacrificial death of Christ. if that's you, I want you to raise your hand because you're not here for an accident. You're here because God's placed you here. Hallelujah. Maybe you're here this morning and you are going through the ringer. That You are in what Job was going through. You're facing difficult times ahead of you, whether it's Whatever it might be, physical, emotional, financial. All of us are going to face those at some time. And we believe that God is the God who heals. So we pray that God would heal in a miraculous way. God's also the God who provides. And we pray that, God, you would provide what each person needs, whether it's financial spiritual or emotional, that you would be the provider of that. As we go through these situations, I pray that the Holy Spirit's able to minister to you in a way that you know that God's with you through it, that God will carry you to the other end, and that when you're done, you'll be mature. Corinthians tells us, when he got through it, now he's able to help somebody else. I want this time to really matter in your life, that God makes himself real to you, and that you. In difficult or hardship times, you really experience the presence and the peace that passes understanding. And when that time is done, you will experience maturity because you'll look back and know that you've known that you know that God was with you. So Father, we do that this morning. and We thank you for your presence. Lord, your word tells us that you're here. The Holy Spirit is here to meet the needs of each person. And I pray that that the power of God would come upon them and you would meet every need. Bring healing to the bodies. Bring blessing and provision to lives that need your provision. Encourage them spiritually, Lord. Allow them to experience the love of Christ in a way they've never experienced before. I pray, Lord, those that are going through a difficult situation that, God, you would be there to hold their hand, to carry them through so that they're able to crawl up in your lap and say, Dad, I need your help. Allow them to experience, as your word says, the manifold blessings of God, the many blessings of God that sometimes are only acquired through the difficult times. And I pray, Lord, as this church as a whole, we are blessed immensely by you. But we also experience trials and tribulations like everybody else. And we pray that as a church body, as a corporate body, we would see the hand of God guiding us through every situation whether it's the property or, or any, any spiritual situation that may be going on, I pray that we, as a body of believers, see the hand of God in a miraculous way and are encouraged and, and excited knowing that you're directing us every step of the way. Father, we love you this morning, and we, expect, we come expecting to hear from you. We come expecting to receive from you. We come expecting to honor and glorify you. And we pray that every church service does exactly those things. Then when we leave, we'll know we've been in your presence. We'll know that you've ministered to us. And we'll know that you love us and care for us. So Father, I pray your blessings upon each person here as we leave. Allow them to know not just when they leave, Lord, but every day of the week. Let them know that you love them and you care for them. Just like a parent loves a little baby you love us. And Father, we just want to love you back to the best of our ability. We want to love you regardless of what you give us, what you don't give us. We're not in it for blessings. We're not in it for that. We're in it because we love you. And all those things are just a byproduct. And Father, we, just, we love you this morning, Lord. We want to commit our lives to growing and maturing and becoming more like you. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Get ready for Thanksgiving.